Hey, I'm Jason, if we haven't met, and I'm really excited that we're all here together tonight uh, because of, first of all, just what it means to have you here. Whoever you are, like wherever you've come from, and especially if it's your first time here, this is actually a, a great time to be here because this month, the conversation that we're having, it's, it's, like, it's great for all of us, but it also is a good chance to get a picture of who we're, we're trying to grow and become as a church. So, uh, so early on, uh, like a while ago now, like in our short history, uh, I start telling friends that I think I'm supposed to be part of a new church in South Bend, and we start putting the pieces together on it. And the first question you get from almost everyone is like, what's it going to be like, right? And that's kind of a natural question to ask. And it struck me like very, on, very early on that the temptation would be to just move straight to the details, right? I, like, like, what color is the carpet going to be? Or like, are we going to have electric guitars? You know, like that kind of thing. And we really didn't want to do that for a number of reasons. So instead, uh, I was interested in, is there, is there a way that we could develop language to describe the sort of spirituality that we think we're supposed to cultivate together here? Uh, is there a way that we can take what we see in Jesus, which is for all times and places and people, but talk about the specific way that we understand that we're supposed to connect to all of that with this thing that we're doing right now? So wrestling with that question and figuring out how to communicate it, a number of mantras developed for our community. And if you were here early on, you heard some of these mantras. And this month, we're talking about them. Now, uh, three of the mantras that we're talking about this month were part of our very early conversations as a church. So maybe you've heard them before. And the good news is we get to refresh them for one another and share them with newer members of our community and press a little further into what they mean. And then uh, today, uh, we have a fourth mantra, which has never been heard before in the history of South Bend City Church, except for Sunday. But, but, but just pretend it's brand new, okay? So this is very exciting. Now, a couple of words about these mantras, and particularly this one. First of all, our hope is that these mantras aren't just like for our community. They aren't just to describe what we're doing collectively. Our, our hope is that they're a gift to you. Like in your day-to-day -day life, we hope that these create like a touch point for you as you think about your work and your family and the, the movements that you go through every week. What does it look like to, to live in the way of Jesus in the world today? We hope they're a gift to you for that. Uh, and one like nice example of that, I got this wonderful text from a member of our community last week. And last week's mantra was practices, not performances. And uh, she's a teacher in one of our public high schools. And she said that that uh, became, in just in the past week, a really useful phrase in her classroom. And it was a way that she could talk to her students and develop culture there. We love that. So that, that's what we hope happens with these. And then today's mantra, the new one, uh, I, think, I think it carries us a little further into who we're supposed to be, which naturally means it might be a little uncomfortable. But I, I just want to ask if you could agree with me to begin with that like, discomfort is not always a bad thing. Right? And we even talked about it last week with practices. Often discomfort's a sign that we're stretching and growing. So wrestle with this with me. Feel free to disagree with me. Let's, let's push together and see what we can learn together uh, today. So that's where we're going. Everybody sound good? You ready to jump in? Okay, excellent. Uh, I'm going to return to a story that I told about a year ago, but we're going to go a little further with it. Uh, last week you learned about how cool Jay was in high school because I was a member of the jazz band. And I just want to like further my credentials as the cool kid in high school by telling you that when I wasn't in jazz band, I was working at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> yes. And I loved my job at Barnes & Noble. I was mostly on the book side, which was a dream for a nerd like me. Uh, but occasionally they would pull me into the cafe side of things. I feel so bad because there's at least like one person, there's like a, a wall between us here. Is that better? Okay, excellent, good. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm at Barnes & Noble, I'm mostly on the book side, and occasionally I'm on the coffee side of things in the Barnes & Noble Cafe. And I've got to tell you, for the record, this was back when baristas were baristas. This isn't like with these new automated sissy machines that you push a button and you get espresso. We had to do the work back then, 
And so I was there at the espresso machine one day doing the work where we time our espresso shots and it's a real work of art. We're very proud of what we're doing. And when you're doing that thing in the cafe, like you're, you're on your side at the espresso machine and to your right is whoever is ringing up customers when they come forward and they give their order. And if, you, if, you, if you're sort of in the practice of it, part of your brain's focused on, on the work in front of you and part of you is always sort of listening to what's happening to your right because those are the orders that are coming your way, right? So you're just sort of listening and anticipating. There's one day that, that I'm there at the espresso machine doing my thing, and my friend Jenny is working at the cash register taking orders. And a thing happens that happens a lot in service industry and retail, but if you've never worked in service industry or retail, you might not know it. And the thing that happens is a human being shows up and decides to be terrible. I mean, like, just terrible. So this woman comes up to order a drink, and for no reason. Like Jenny doesn't, Jenny is bright and wonderful and helpful. She's like as good as it gets on this side of the counter. And this lady walks up and she just for some reason decided Jenny was the person that she was going to unload all of her attitude on. You know what I mean? Like just, just disparaging, dismissing, just like snotty as you can get. And, and like it's not just in her words, it's in her body language. And so I'm sitting there listening to snotty lady and I'm thinking about how much of my snot can I get into your coffee without you noticing? <laughs> which I honestly did think, but I promise I didn't do, because um, I think that's a felony. Uh, but but I'm, I'm thinking about this, you know, and I'm listening to this whole thing, and I, I, my blood is boiling, right? Because, like, Jenny's my friend, and there's no reason for this kind of a thing. Now, then what happens is a snotty lady is standing there addressing Jenny, but what snotty doesn't know is that manager lady from our store has walked up behind snotty lady. Now, manager lady is awesome. She was like a really good manager. She's the kind of person you want to work for because she's kind and she's smart and she always has your back. And in like retail, that really matters. So snotty lady's there unloading on my friend Jenny and manager lady walks up behind snotty lady. Snotty lady doesn't know that manager lady is there and there's something else that snotty lady doesn't know. And manager lady is about to leverage that to alter this whole interaction. So snotty lady is just like, just tearing into Jenny for no reason, and snotty lady takes a breath just so she can like reload her ammo to come at Jenny even more. And when she takes a breath, manager lady sees her opportunity, and, and speaking sort of over the shoulder of snotty lady, manager lady says to Jenny, and this is true by the way, Jenny, I heard you got into Harvard. Congratulations, are you excited? Snotty lady just transforms. All of a sudden, like that, like, like a 180 in an instant, snotty lady turns into, oh, Harvard, how wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. You'll love it. My daughter's friend went to Harvard. Are you so excited? And all of a sudden, there's a human being in front of her, right? And I'm sitting there thinking, shut up, you know? I want to probe that interaction for a second. Like, like I want to ask, how do we get to a point where a human being is disposable? I want to ask what's happening in those moments because it's not just at the Barnes & Noble Cafe. It's not just in the service industry. It's all those bizarre times and places where one human being is able to look at another human being and dismiss or dispose. I want to probe what's going on there a little bit. I want to use a modern word for what's happening there. And I want to reach back for some older words for what's happening there and we'll see where they take us together here. A modern word for what's happening there, and this is sort of a weird-sounding word the way we're using it tonight, the word is othering. This comes from a number of disciplines and the way that we talk about and understand 
uh, individual human interaction and group human interaction. So a modern word for this is othering, or where Jenny on the other side of the counter, because there's like that thing that, that separates not just the counter, but it, it designates different roles in that interaction. And, and the, for some reason, the woman, because of the setup of that interaction, she, she looks at Jenny and, and she sees like that which is other than her. Makes sense? Othering. Now, othering is, a, is a, a strange word, but I think, I think you'll understand what I'm talking about if I describe some ways that we would know if we are othering someone, if we're seeing them as the other, if we're putting them in the position of the other. Here's a, a few sort of test questions we could ask ourselves. If we find ourselves afraid of someone or some group of people for no actual, logical, evidentiary reason, we might have othered them. Right? So if, if a human being has done nothing to give evidence that they're a threat to us, if there's nothing in their history or in their posture or in their interaction with us, if there's nothing actual or evidentiary about them to tell them that they're a threat to us but we're afraid of them, we might have othered them. Make sense? Uh, here's a few more examples. Um, if, if what they say or what they do, and this could be an individual or a group, okay, if an individual or a person is a part of a group of individuals, if, if, if what they say or think or believe is intrinsically suspect, like you just assume it's wrong, like we might have othered someone, right? How about this? Um, if, uh, if we assume that they have nothing to teach us, if because of who they are or the group that they're a part of or whatever, if I just assume you have nothing to teach me, nothing I could learn from you, I might have othered you. I might have put you sort of across that line from me in some way that says, I've got nothing that I could learn from or get from you, right? Uh, what about this one? If we find ourselves not even thinking, or if it never dawns on us that they have a story, a history, that they have background and, and wounds and like depth to where they've been and, and why they're here right now. If we've never thought about the fact that they have a story, we might have othered them. Because like we're quick to appreciate the possibility of a story, of a, of a life, of, of, of things that shape a person when they're sort of a part of our tribe, when we identify with them, when we relate to them, when we feel common ground. And we're quick to forget that possibility when we've othered someone. Or how about this one? If, if you just assume the worst about their motives, person or group, if there's something about the label they carry or, or, or the role that they occupy, and because of that you assume the worst about their motives, and so maybe you, you don't know what's going on inside their head, but you see them do something, and if somebody that you haven't othered, somebody that you haven't sort of put in that category, right, somebody else did the same thing, you would think there's a good reason they did it. You, I like the fact that they did that. I understand why they did that. But because this person has been othered, you assume uh, the worst. Oh, I know why they did that. I know what they're going for, right? These are all little uh, sort of indications that we might have othered someone. Now, um, the Bible has ways of getting around these ideas of, of like othering, like how these lines are drawn between us. But it's, uh, it's through different language. And so I want to turn, for example, to a place in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching and there's, there's sort of a constellation of words here, words that we may not think so much about our day-to-day -day interactions and how they apply, but, but I, I, just hang with me. We're going to put some layers together here and then sort of draw it all together and bring this to our mantra. But listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, 
you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is an Aramaic word, this is Jesus' sort of native language. This is a word that means like you empty-headed one, you're sort of worthless, you're sort of meaningless, you don't matter very much. If you use that word, you're answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now just a little later in his teaching here, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So there Jesus is bringing together words like murder and hate and neighbor and enemy and love. And uh, I want to I propose to you that he's got a reason for connecting all of that. Uh, sometimes when I'm reading Jesus, I like to ask myself, like, like, where does he actually get that from? Like, is he justified in what he's saying or teaching? Is there anything that undergirds it? And maybe you think, like, I thought Jesus was allowed to kind of just be right. Like, I don't think we had to, like, probe that or test. Depending on your perspective on Jesus, maybe you're like, he just has the big red phone, right? Like, he just kind of gets it direct. Not everybody in the room will, like, have that perspective, but many might think that way. But I actually think that, like, doesn't give Jesus the full benefit of the doubt as, like, fully fleshed, fully God, thinking, being raised up in Jewish faith in the first century, like, I think it's more interesting than we learn more when we ask, like, where does Jesus get that from? Why is he talking about murder and hate and enemies and neighbors and love all in that same little package? Because murder seems pretty intense, maybe. It's kind of over here on its own. Like, where, where does he get off putting all that together? Well, uh, you can bet that Jesus, being a good Jewish man in the first century, deeply immersed in the Hebrew scriptures, that when he brings up murder, for example, you can bet that he's going to be thinking about the first time in the scriptures that murder is ever prohibited. Like, if he's going to take the prohibition against murder and pull more out of it, he's going to go back to where it comes from and and dig into why that comes out in the first place. So this is Genesis chapter 9, and this is the first time in the scripture that murder is ever prohibited. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Uh, So the whole idea, like the no murder thing, is predicated on this idea that in the image of God has God made mankind. Let me go back a little further, because that idea comes from just a few chapters earlier in the text. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is when God's doing all the creating. This is the first page of the scripture. This is that first picture of God bringing the world together. And we read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, This is really foundational, and I'm going to work this out with you for a little bit, okay? So Jesus is talking about murder, but the prohibition against murder is predicated on the value of a human being, because that human being is made in the image of God. That's the first time the scripture says this is bad. It's because because of that, right? And then you've got an image of God going back to Genesis 1 where we read male and female. He created humankind to bear this image. Now here's what's interesting. This is actually um, saying something more specific than we could hear if we just read this text. So like the, if, if what you hear right now is, wow, Genesis is revealing that a human being could bear the image of God. If, if that's what we hear here, that's actually not as interesting and specific as what's actually going on. Because in the ancient world, in the time and place where this text comes from, 
It's actually quite common to believe that a human being could be made in the image of God. It seems to be the assumption for human beings in this time and place that a human being could be made in the image of God. Let me show you other examples of this assumption. This comes from Mesopotamia, for example. This is an inscription that people have found. This is, uh, the father of my lord, the king, is the very image of Bel. That's a name for a god. And the king, my lord, is the very image of Bel. Again, that's a god. Or how about this one? O king of the inhabited world, this is talking to a human being, you are the image of Marduk, which is a Babylonian god, a name for a Babylonian god, okay? Or how about this one? Anybody remember this like from the cover of National Geographic growing up? Anybody know who that is? King Tut, yeah, this is King Tut. I remember like being fascinated with King Tut for like a minute when I was growing up. It's very interesting, right? So this is an Egyptian pharaoh whose tomb was found and King Tut's full name is Tutankhamun or Tutankhamun. And Tutankhamun literally translated means the living image of the god Amun. That's, that's what the guy's name means. So watch this. When Genesis 1 talks about people being made in the image of God, it's not interesting or insightful or revelatory or important that Genesis says a human being could be made in the image of God. Here's what matters. All of those other examples, their imagination only goes so far as to say a king could bear the image of God. That's the important difference here. It's the assumption in this time and place that a human being could bear the image of God. They're called the king. The radical, revelatory, insightful, important thing in Genesis 1 is that everyone bears the image of God. That it's democratized or given to everyone. That it's a blessing for every human being, regardless of whether you are man or woman, regardless of your status in the world. That's what's insightful about this. And by the way, The scripture never revokes this assessment of humanity. Watch this. The scripture never revokes it. Now, it complicates it. It complicates it because there are other things that are true of us too, right? (laughs) Like, there are a lot of things that are true of us. Uh, Ways that we are uh, wonderful and good and ways that we are broken and rebellious. Like, there are many things that are true, but the scripture doesn't revoke this assessment. It simply complicates it by setting alongside it other things that are true of us, but it never revokes the idea that every human being comes into this world with the blessing of a bearer of God's image, which means that when a human being is dismissed or disrespected or disparaged or disposed of, like when that is happening between us, when that kind of othering stuff is happening, when we come against each other, when the enemy stuff is happening, it's not just disrespectful, it's not just a sort of uh, etiquette problem. It's an act of fundamental desecration or blasphemy because when that happens, it's a human being looking at a person who bears the image of God. Like, what more could you say? How could you reach for bigger language to describe how important it is to be a human being and to honor a human being? Like, what else could you say if you were trying to help someone understand that when you look at a human being, you are looking at something that matters, something that's important? Something that's high stakes, that has enduring worth. Like, is like, there any other language that you could grab to in- insist on greater dignity for every human being than this language from Genesis, which has the guts to say every human being is a bearer of the image of God. And then we follow that assumption to Genesis 9, which says, and that's what governs the way we should relate. That's why murder is wrong. That's what governs the way that we should relate. Um, now, uh, you've been in moments, and I've been in moments, when you've, you've seen that image being disrespected, and maybe you haven't had this language for it, but I suspect something inside you has screamed. 
I don't know what your examples are. I've been thinking a lot as I've been working on these texts about just examples, times where, I, where I've seen. So Jenny's an example. Like in that sort of everyday retail interaction where I watch one human being disparaging, disrespecting another human being. And I, I think what I'm learning from this is like, it's not just that it's rude. There's a deeper problem with that because here's a human being who bears the image of God and snotty lady doesn't see any of that, right? Sometimes in church settings this comes up. Uh, one example is this. That sh- uh, it's one example that happens again and again when I hear this story. So uh, I'll, I'll find myself on an airplane or at a party or at a bar or something like that where I'm meeting people who maybe don't know me or I'm in another place and eventually they find out what I do and it often follows the same cycle, which there is a, they're a little weird about it for about 30 seconds, and then they want to confess, which is very strange. Like, people actually are quite confessional if they just get over like a little hump and then they find you like to be a decent human being. They want to confess to a pastor. I don't know why. And often they'll talk about how maybe they were a part of a church, but they're not anymore. That's like a, a common narrative I'll hear, right? And I'll probe that just a little bit. And so often the story I hear, and they may not use these words for it, but what I hear in their story is, you know, I, I, I took a step, I tried to be a part of a community, but it's like the community, it's like the preacher, it's like the energy of that place, it's like the view of that place toward me was they could only see me as an object for conversion. Like, I'm just here so they can fix me, change me, convert me. And they may not use that language, but what I hear in there is like maybe they, maybe even some sort of subconscious part of themselves, maybe their heart, maybe their soul, hoped that a community of faith would see what is enduringly important about them and intrinsically dignified about them. But instead, all it saw was a person that's here to be fixed, changed, converted. And when I hear those stories, like something inside me just breaks. Because it, it, it diminishes, it misses what is true of a human being. Or how about this um, friend of mine who I, I just recently heard this story. So a friend of mine who I've been friends with for quite a while, who's a little bit older than me, and he's a gay man, who uh, just recently told me the story of what happened when he came out. And this is going back like 20 years or something like that. He, um, he was sort of found out, if you will. And he was deeply involved in his church community. I mean, like deeply invested. He was like, had a lot of, a lot of involvement there in that community. And then when he gets outed or found out or when he comes out, uh, the elders of the church uh, force him to write a letter and then stand in front of the church of hundreds of people and read that. And to read the letter in front of that community where he tells them what a terrible person he is and how depraved he is and how broken he is. And then you would think, okay, he played their game. Maybe they would let him stick around. But no, then the next thing that happens is he's booted. He's kicked out. And it's his whole family. It's his whole community. And I, I remember just hearing that story. And I'm like, I just, something like breaks inside you, doesn't it? Because I'm looking at this, this, uh, this friend of mine who I really care about, and what I see for, what I'm learning to see first is uh, a bearer of the image of God. Like, how can we do that to one another? Or let's just keep going with some of these layers here. Um, I remember sitting in a medical ethics class in grad school. We were studying medical ethics and theology and the way these things intersect, and there's a lot of complicated questions there about the dignity of a person and and the way that we treat um, modern questions that are arising through new medical developments. And one of the things that we looked at in that class was uh, euthanasia policy. So uh, places in the world where uh, assisted suicide is allowed in one way or another. And we looked at a country uh, in Europe where an assisted suicide or euthanasia law was created that allowed for euthanasia for elderly people in instances of extreme suffering. That was the basic language of the statute. And then you look at what happens after the law is put in place 
and we're um, seeing how the courts are interpreting the law and what kinds of things they agree and say, yeah, that's extreme suffering, you can end your life. And what ends up happening after a couple of years is the courts degrade that standard to the point that an elderly person can walk into a court and say, well, my family doesn't visit me anymore, and so I'm lonely. So the court says, go ahead, end your life. Now, public policy and ethics, there's a lot of actually complicated layers there, and I don't mean to diminish or collapse what's complex about this. And maybe you're hearing that and you're thinking, I thought we were talking about like enemies and othering, and this seems like it's kind of categorically distinct, right? But watch what happened there. You had a human being who, because they became elderly, because they were sick, maybe they had some dementia, maybe they had some mental difficulty, they, they became, and I'm not trying to diminish this, it can be very, 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 very hard to care for an elderly family member. I get that. But we're talking about a human being who, who becoming difficult in their old age, the family just says, it's just not worth it anymore. Like, I'm not going to show up. And so they just sit there alone in a nursing home, and the story ends with them dying before their time. And I remember reading that and wrestling with that, and something inside me, like, breaks. Because that's a human being, a bearer of inherent and intrinsic dignity. Because the first word that Scripture has for that person is that they are a bearer of the image of God, and at the end, they, they get thrown away. This is um, me wrestling with uh, the sort of dialogue culture that seems to be festering right now, and dialogue's probably too good of a word for it. It's more like the culture of shut up, which is to borrow a commentator's phrase that I read recently, like, as we're trying to figure out what kind of society we want to create together, it seems like we're getting to a place where it's like, I don't want to learn from you, I don't like what you're saying, so I'm going to use whatever power I have to just directly shut you up. I'm not going to engage your ideas, I'm not going to critique your ideas, I'm just going to tell you shut up, and I'm going to use whatever power I have to get you to shut up. And I watch us doing that to one another, and like, something breaks inside. Or, uh, I look at like recent and very sort of visible examples of what my brothers and sisters of color deal with on a very regular basis, like Charlottesville, like just blatant racism in our streets, bold racism in our streets, uh, where color of skin or nationality or background um, is not just a reason for uh, discussion of difference, it's, it's a reason uh, to fear and to hate and to rally around those energies and like something inside just breaks. I think about um, Islamophobia. Uh, I remember hearing this from a friend of mine in Notre Dame, the day that 9-11 happened. Uh, this friend of mine is a Christian theology professor at Notre Dame, and another professor at Notre Dame is a Muslim. And the day that 9-11 happens, the campus calls a, a large prayer gathering on one of the quads. So there's like thousands of people there on the quad, and my friend, this Christian theology professor, is holding hands as they do a, a campus prayer with this Muslim woman, and she's trembling. And she's saying under her breath, they're going to hate us. And she knew that like the, the extremist um, movement of a, a tiny minority of people who claim that faith would be leveraged into a judgment or a way of othering everyone in that faith. And I see it happening you know, on a national level, and I see it happening to some of my Muslim friends, and something inside just like screams. Um... Because every human being is a bearer of that image, and the Scripture never revokes that. It complicates it, but it never revokes that. Now, the temptation for a community like ours, I think, I know my temptation is to think, and thank God I'm not like that. <laughs> thank God we're so enlightened, because some of those examples are extreme, and we think, like, we would never 
march in the streets for racial exclusion. Like, we would never, like, come against another human being because of their faith. It's tempting for us to think that way. Um, but first of all, let me just observe, it, it's just good wisdom to assume that whatever is, the, whatever is breaking the world is broken in us somehow. That's just good wisdom to assume that whatever is breaking the world is probably broken in us some. Whatever virus is making the world sick, like, let's not assume that we're not susceptible to catching it, right? So, so that just seems like good wisdom. And also, have you ever observed this thing happening, which is where a person evolves a little bit, or they get a little enlightened, and the pe- there, there were people they used to exclude, but now they embrace them, and they recognize that shift happening in their life. And they're really like excited about that and proud of how enlightened they are, but now they start excluding the people that they used to embrace because the people they used to embrace exclude the people that they now embrace, and they just swapped out one prejudice for another, right? You ever see that happen? Ever happen to you? I've been there, I'll be really honest. Like, so if we just sit here and say, well, it, this is good to critique what's going on out there and thank God we're not like that, I just wanna like say, ah, hold on, maybe? Maybe this is not as easy as like, yeah, got it. Good thing we're not like that. Maybe this actually calls for a kind of transformation in us. Like maybe, maybe we ought to think about some tools to check ourselves, some, some ways of making sure that we don't go along with this kind of thing that happens in all these different ways. Like we might need some practice. We might need some language. We might need to learn from the history of the church how we could be transformed out of those problems and actually become the kind of people who can champion this vision in the world uh, for what it means to be human. Now, to get there, um, I'm going to take you. Everybody doing okay? We're, doing, we're covering a lot of ground today. Uh, to, do, to get there, I want to take you toward um, an ancient Christian practice. Uh, so the word in Genesis 1 is image. And uh, in the Greek, that's icon, E-I-K-O-N. And that shows up in modern English as the word icon, I-C-O-N. Now, I'm not talking here about... Um, I'm not talking about like computer images on your screen. Here I'm talking about uh, an ancient practice that a a deep stream within Christian history has turned to in worship and devotion transformation. And it's actually the practice of praying with or worshiping with icons. So anybody ever seen an image like this? Uh, This is an example of an icon of Jesus. Maybe you've seen it online. Maybe you've been in a church that comes from uh, traditions that use icons like this. Um, Maybe you've... uh, like seen it on somebody's wall in their room. Maybe you like kind of weirded out by it. Like maybe you're more the Thomas Kincaid type. Maybe this isn't like your art style. You know, like I get that. I don't know if you find this ugly or beautiful or interesting or bizarre or, and by the way, you're allowed to feel however you want about this right now. Okay, I'm not like, I'm not concerned about that. But this is an icon. This is an example of an image that has been created uh, typically in the Eastern Orthodox tradition or in in, in the Eastern sort of branch of the church. Um, where, where a way of being able to sort of pray and meditate is directed with, with an image like this. I had an experience with an icon, not this one, but another one. Let me show you this uh, not too long ago. So this is uh, from a Russian artist named Rublev, and this is a sort of famous icon of the Trinity. Uh, a little while ago, and we can just leave that up there for a bit, Caleb. A little while ago, uh, I took my team on a retreat, and we went to a Jesuit retreat house, uh, where we were going to spend a couple of days praying together with some other people and, and learning about some of the same practices that we're trying to grow in as a church. And uh, I got to tell you, like, so we, we pack our bags, we hit the road, we drive a few hours, and we get to the retreat. And I get to my room and I throw my bag down, and I'm a little stressed. Like, I don't know if you guys heard, but we're planning the church. It's, it's a little stressful. Like, it's, there's a lot to do, it's busy. And we get to this retreat house, and I, I feel all those sort of anxious energies, right? And the thought of just sort of like stopping everything, turning off my phone for like three whole days or what, I'm, you know, this is like kind of tense for me. 
And I, I'm like, my brain is just racing on all the tasks, all the things that we're trying to get done, and I'm just really uncomfortable with this. So I get to my little room. We all have individual rooms for this retreat. It's this very modestly appointed retreat house with a little bed, and there's no ornamentation to it whatsoever except for this little icon on the wall. And I rush into my room and throw my bag down, and I've got to get downstairs in a bit for the beginning of the retreat. And I look at this icon, and something about it just grabs me. And it's not really my style of art. It's not like, it's not just a pure sort of, oh, that's just pretty to look at. There was something uh, deeper about it. So I sat and I stared at it. I sat on the end of my bed and I just looked at it for a little while. And at the time, I didn't even know that it was Rublev's icon of the Trinity. There was just like something in the image that like stirred up something inside me. And as I sat with that for a bit, I realized that what I was feeling was there was like an invitation in this image. And by the way, it is, it's sort of a peculiar representation of Father and Son and Spirit. And it's like my soul was like sensing that like, like the invitation in the painting was like, hey, there's room for one more here. We know you have big important things to do, but if you would like to just sit with us for a moment, we have room for one more. And um, I mean, that really started to work on me. This, uh, I've learned, uh, would not be uncommon for people in the experience of icons. People who pray with icons or come from these traditions will tell you that one of the things that an icon is here for is, is it, it uses what is visible to help you learn to see what transcends the visible. So there I was, there's this visible painting that I could see, but it helped me see what transcended that, which was A, my own sort of anxiousness and hurry, and B, God inviting me to leave all that behind for a moment and experience the welcome of this divine community. That, that, was, that was what was going on there. It took me a minute, but an icon is something that uses the visible to help you learn to see what transcends the visible. And after all of that, uh, this brings us to the mantra that we want to introduce today. The mantra is simply this. Everyone, an icon. Everyone, an icon. Uh, first of all, just as a theological idea, right, from Genesis, every human being a bearer of the image or, or an icon of God. But, but on top of that, an invitation to practice, to learn how to pray. Uh, every human being, every flesh and blood person, an invitation to grow and to stretch and to learn to see some things that perhaps transcend the visible but that are deeply true. Every human being an icon, everyone an icon, everyone a chance to, to learn how to see what is enduring and dignified about a person when there are lines of race or tribe or inconvenience or difference or politics or labels that separate us. Everyone an icon, everyone a chance to learn, a chance to see what's true. Every human being a chance to see some refraction of what, of, of what God is showing us in the world. Like every human being a chance to grow in worship. Every human being a chance to grow in prayer and devotion. Every human being a chance to grow in wonder. Everyone an icon. Now, uh, it's a new mantra for us, but I hope it doesn't feel completely new in its spirit. Because we, we've been reaching and, and trying to work our way toward this idea and toward this language in a number of ways as a church. So let me just sort of highlight for you a few of the ways that maybe you've seen us do some things or, or maybe you haven't noticed or maybe we're reaching for some things, but uh, here's an example. And it's, it's really simple, but it's, it's a turn of language that matters to me. 
So when we start a gathering, we'll uh, you know, be here in the room and we might sing a song or two or say a prayer and then one of us will get up here and do a, a welcome of sorts, right? And as I've been thinking about this, I found my language shifting. Because ordinarily we might stand up and say, hey, we want to welcome you. Like, whoever you are, wherever you're from, we want to welcome you. My problem with that, I mean, it's not bad, but my problem with it is it's not enough. Because welcome could be like just a shade above tolerate, right? Like, when we say, oh, you're welcome to be here, I guess. And like, well, you're welcome to have a seat. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily ring like with this deep and robust conviction that we have. So I find myself moving to the language of honor. And more often these days, I find myself saying, we want to honor you. Like, I want, I want like a deeper, bigger, more committed word for how we think about one another in this community. So we've been, at least for me, like I find myself shifting to the language of honor. And maybe you've noticed that or maybe you haven't. But it's one little way that we are trying to reflect this idea. Everyone an icon. Uh, another example. Uh, we've done this early in our history as a church and we'll do more of it. We, we want to reach and learn from, I don't mean, we want to reach out of and learn from people like beyond our thresholds. Um, beyond however this sort of tribe is defined or circumscribed, right? So early on, for example, we did two listening nights in experimental gatherings at the BRIC. So this is going back quite a while. Again, quite a while. In our church, that's like a, a minute. But like in our history, that's going back a ways. And we did two experimental gatherings that were listening nights. And one of those listening nights, the only voices that we heard from were voices from outside our church. And that was really important to us. And we did a combination, we went and we recorded some audio of people and we read some letters. And we, we badly wanted to hear from people who, who are outside this threshold. Because if, if, if we believe this, then we have something to learn from people outside of whatever circle we draw here, right? Uh, in the future, it means like I look forward to the right times and the right moments when we'll bring voices even to this stage who may not even affirm the things that are most central to what we hold as a community in terms of like our creed, or our beliefs about Jesus, but that won't be a violation of our beliefs about Jesus. It will be an expression of it. From time to time, we'd like to model that in this room, to do it together, to learn from people, from other traditions and other perspectives, because everyone, an icon, to sort of counteract the othering that is so easy for us to do individually and as a church. Uh, how about this one? Um, uh, we are very, very committed to, to figuring out, to making sure the South Bend City Church is a place where any person who identifies as L or G or B or T or Q is safe and honored and loved. It really matters to us. And um, if me saying that sort of raises questions or discomfort for you, let me just say, like, one of the starting points for us on that is the, rea the lived reality of so many brothers and sisters, LGBTQ, who have been um, receiving some of the worst examples of the, of the opposite of this mantra, right? Who have been seen through uh, lenses of judgment, of hate. Uh, if you're, if you're a, like a teenager in the United States, like let's say the general population of teenagers, you know, a very small percentage identifies LGBTQ as a sample set, right? But then you go and you look at the homeless population of teenagers, and it's like inverted. Like, like if, if you're a teenager and you're LGBTQ, you have an insanely higher likelihood of literally, literally being kicked to the curb and made vulnerable because of that. And so, of course, like we, we have to go the other way on that, right? We have to say everyone an icon. That has to be our starting point for what we're creating together. How about this? Uh, when it comes to, well, so, so 
if you're like me, you've had an experience of God in Jesus that has like lit you up. It's made you alive, and, and you, you might want to share that with other people. It's, it's like a normal thing, I think, right? And as a church, like together, we, we would want to share that with other people. And in that moment, when you want to share the experience of God that you've had in Jesus with other people, it's quite possible that you've been told or taught that the way that you start that conversation is make sure the other person knows how they have nothing in common with Jesus and they are not like God in any way. Anybody gotten that sort of, that sort of approach to those conversations? Uh, and let me just observe, if that's actually like how God wanted those conversations to start, why does this not start that way? <laughs> It doesn't. Like the first word that this scripture brings to us about ourselves and one another, the first word, if we, if we call this God's word, if we call this what God is speaking to us, the first thing God says to us is you are blessed. You have dignity. You matter. There's something about you that's a little bit like God. Something about your love, your passion, your creativity, your energy. There's something about you that has something in common with God. It's like, hey, you know what? If you met Jesus, you might really like this guy. You might find something in common with, with how we learn about God through Christ. Like that, that's a very different posture. And I'm just telling you, as a church, we're interested in starting there with one another, whether in the room or like in our community, uh, because it's how we see the scripture starting. Um, and then how about this? When churches uh, want to do good in the world, one of the very unintentional and accidental things that can happen is that in doing good for people, we can other them. So hang with me on this for a bit, okay? I'm not impugning motive here, and we have to keep learning about this together as a church. But it, but it can be that, like, so, well, here's a more direct example for us as a community. So our church uh, lands in this neighborhood in South Bend, which is a diverse neighborhood in a number of ways. It's diverse economically and racially and educationally. And, um, and, and some of our neighbors in this neighborhood uh, have circumstances that are different from many who are a member of, of this community as we got started. And I think what was really beautiful is that a lot of people who called South Bend City Church home were excited about being in this neighborhood because we hoped that we could serve and love and, and intersect with some of our neighbors who have difficult circumstances in their life. Awesome, beautiful, good, right? But we move in here, and then what happens is I've, I've had a number of people like uh, talk to me like, hey, um, and I, I'm actually being really sort of awkwardly careful about my language even now as I talk about this. Um, because it's really important. So, like, people would maybe come up to me and say, hey, like, I kind of thought, you know, being in the neighborhood, whatever their perception is of, of our neighborhood and whatever the circumstances are of our neighbors in this neighborhood, like, I kind of thought we'd, like, see more of that, like, in here, okay? And, and here's the trick with that. Um, you have to ask them, what makes you think that neighbors that have different circumstances aren't here? Because the trick is, like, if I pick up a, a particular kind of human circumstance and make a big deal from up here about the fact that people in that circumstance are part of this community, I've come awfully dangerously close to othering them just by doing that. Can you imagine, like, being in this room and if the circumstance that you're living in is the one that's being described and we're patting ourselves on the back for how good we've been to deal with people in those circumstances? Do you see how that would just, like, create its own sort of othering effect in the room? I know this is a little complicated, but this is the stuff we wrestle with as a leadership team, and it's very important to the way that we try to approach the needs that are in our city. That was a lot of words. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, we don't want to inadvertently other people as we try to serve them. 
Um, that's a lot. I think I hit enough reasons for everybody to leave the church now. So did I miss anything? Okay. Uh, one more move in this, and, uh, and then we're, we really are wrapping up. Um, everyone an icon, you have never looked a human being in the eyes who wasn't made in the image of God, right? Okay, hold on to that. But listen, that also means you have never looked in the mirror and looked in the eyes of a human being who wasn't made in the image of God. This applies to you, too. And if bad religion or bad ideas or bad messages have told you something else about yourself, please hear me. This applies to you, too. But because there are other things that are true about us, other, other sort of complicating factors that are true about us, we may live at sort of great distance from this thing that is true about us. And here's the power and here's the beauty of this. I actually believe that like, if we will learn to see everybody else through this lens, everyone an icon, everyone a bearer of the image of God, it's possible that the image of God in us will become more and more expressed. It's possible that our capacity to live and love in the nature of God will grow. That this very thing that's true about us will become more and more expressed as we learn to see it in other people. Which, uh, for me, makes this incredibly hopeful. And I gotta tell you, like, for the past week, I've been sort of buzzing with a certain kind of energy that we get to press into this as a community. Because um, there's some tension points in this idea. But also, like, let's not waste time being afraid of that. Um, because what's at stake couldn't be more important. Everyone an icon. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? And uh, I want to read a benediction for us. It's interesting. Um, once, you, once you start thinking about othering and everyone an icon and the image of God in every person, and then, and by the way, if we had another 10 hours, we could do a whole, like, thing on the image of God in the New Testament and what's going on with Jesus, and it's, it's, it's good stuff. Um, but you start seeing it everywhere in the scriptures. And I want to turn to one of the places where we see this. And Paul writes a letter to the Colossians to this church, and he actually invokes a bunch of othering categories. We don't hear it that way because these are ancient categories of othering. But he actually like, just lists a bunch of them, and he says, we don't do that. So let me, um, let me read this as a benediction for us before we turn to our common uh, way of parting. You have taken your, off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew. Those are othering lines. Here there is no circumcised or uncircumcised. Here there is no barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and is in Everyone, an icon, and that includes you. Grace and peace be with you, friends. Amen. I love you guys.